So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. It's bloody Christmas. We hope you've had... Was. It was, yeah. <laughs> we hope you've had a lovely couple of days, maybe a week off if you've been so lucky. I guess this is the only thing that I'm like controversial about. It's the only thing that, that I could butt heads with people about, but is... I'm interesting to see what this is now. You know, when people talk about like, oh, you need a break and you need to, you need to not work too hard and don't get burnt out and all of that stuff online of like, oh, you deserve time off and all that stuff. I'm like, no, you need to fucking work hard. Like if you want things to happen, you have to put work into it. If you don't, like they just won't happen and you're living in a fucking fairy tale. I think it's really damaging this, this kind of notion of like, of don't work hard that people buy into because it's more attractive to not work hard. It's a quick win, isn't it? It's that like, oh, I can get all these things I want and I don't have to actually work hard for it. Yeah. I can take loads of breaks and like, have it really I, easy. I feel like if you are really, really happy in what you do, then that's fucking bully for you. I think, great, just do whatever it is that's making you happy. But you can't moan about not being happy and then not put the work in that it takes to get yourself out of that crap situation, to make more money, to start a business, to... Yeah. to like, it, it just, it takes hard work. There's a really good example of that um, that I heard someone say about, it's like driving a car. So when you first start a car, you're in first gear and you rev your engine, it goes mental. And it's that kind of like, you just keep going and like you have to work really hard with your engine absolutely going. But as you've been doing it for a certain amount of time, that's when you go into second, third and things get smoother and easier. But when you first start, you need to start in first gear. If you start in fourth gear, but super slow, you won't go anywhere and you'll just stall. Yeah, but even then, I mean, you work, you have your own business. Like, although we may be in second gear, our second gear looks so different to our friends who work nine to fives. But the one time that I do advocate, have a little break and it's fine and don't work so hard is over Christmas because like there's really not much you can do over this time because if you're trying to get clients, they're not replying to their emails. Everyone's out of office. Yeah. And but then again, I think if you're starting something, Christmas is such a perfect time because there's often not a lot going on. There's just some like crappy films on TV that you've probably seen. We've seen about 400 times, like fully advocate a Christmas film, like go and watch all your favorites. But as soon as like, Home Alone 5 comes on or something and you're like, well, I just don't care about this. So that's when you've actually got some time where you can sit and sit and do something and kind of get ready for your New Year's resolution. Get ready for kind of like starting something for the next year. Yeah, this is actually um, quite a difficult time of year for us, certainly when it comes to finances, because Christmas is the most expensive time of the year because you've got to buy bloody presents for everyone. And for us, like our, our business really slows down in December and then it takes at least January to get it kind of revved up again to, yeah. for projects to start to come through. So it, it's always a really kind of lean few months for us um, in this time of the business. So it can be frustrating knowing that there's no money coming in and there's not really that much that you can do about it. December and January are a really good time to network because quite a lot of industries are quieter around this period. So people have a bit more time in their hands. So if you want to start meeting some new people and start connecting with people you've not met before, like this is a really good time to do it because you're building for the year ahead. So then when busy season kicks in, you've got those connections. You're, or you've already met these people when you're a bit quieter. So I definitely think like have a bit of a break around Christmas. It's a great time to make the most of have it because you know everyone else is having a break, connect with them. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be using LinkedIn over the Christmas period to um, make some new connections and stuff while I've got some downtime. So, yeah. Shall we tell the listeners what we've got them for Christmas? I think that would be a lovely idea. Yes. Starting tomorrow, we have recorded a little six-part series, um, which is basically our guide to starting anything. So if you've got an idea of anything you've been thinking about over the past few days, the past week, the past year, 
that you just haven't actually gone to start yet or you're struggling with the start period. So maybe you've just about started, but you maybe have not got a first client. We're going to go into all the things that we do when we start a business. It's going to really help you kickstart the next year or kickstart your project, whatever it is you want to do. I mean, I like to think that you're going to get a shit ton of value from this. I think that the stuff that we're going to be telling you about is literally stuff that people would pay money for. It's the kind of thing that we could put into a course and charge money for. We've really delved into a lot of the stuff that we look at every time we start a new project. So um, I hope it's going to be really useful to you guys. And it's a, it's a thank you for listening to us for the past year. Can't believe it's nearly been a year that we've, that oh, we've yeah. been, that we've been out. It's crazy. Like, this is our last episode of 2019, the year we started, which yeah. is crazy. Like it's been so amazing. Yeah. It's been wild. And we just want to thank you for, for listening because um, yeah, without you guys, there would be no show and, um, and yeah, we love it. We absolutely love it. So thank you everyone who's listened. Um, if you would like to get a present for us then that is very simple to do you go to iTunes and you leave us a lovely review and that would be all the present that we want in the world so thank you thank you guys and so this week's episode we're interviewing Yona Thomas yeah so we thought because this is going to be like we really we looked at like all of our guests that we've got coming up and my god we have got some yeah. bloody amazing guests coming 2020 up 2020 guys it's exciting insane but um, yeah, we, we thought we want someone like we wanted like a really warm episode, like a family episode. So we thought who better than our business partner, Yona. Yona Thomas is an artist, entrepreneur and our business partner. We often describe Yona as the brains and heart of our business. Yona was actually one of our first clients in the first few months of our business. We kept going back to her to ask her for more and more advice. After months of putting full time hours into the company on the side whilst working a full time job, we're able to bring Yona on as a full-time business partner. We've been through many trials and tribulations. The ups and downs of running a business together for 10 years have forged an incredible bond between us. And we're so happy to introduce our business partner to you all. In this episode, we talk about business partners, the importance of handcrafted and treating life as a career. I strongly believe that life is a career. You know, I hope to write an album at one point in my life and if I'm 80 when I do it, then so be it. It's not like you have to pick one thing and go with it. And I think people feel such pressure to choose their passion. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to nice to be here. Don't get to play on this side of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long have we been business partners for? Um, nine and a half years. And where did we meet? We, well, you like to say we met at Reading Festival, but that is not accurate. We met at a networking event. It wasn't it? Like it wasn't even really a networking event, was it? Because it was networking event before networking events were a thing no, I think, they were I, a thing yeah I feel like networking events have been a thing for like 50 plus yeah. years oh, I suppose just I just wasn't in business so I didn't really know that they existed it wasn't officially a networking event it was actually a, a company launch party but we were both there to network what was the company? Glamoo I don't know if they're still going but I do know that there's a video of the moment that me and David met on YouTube still because it's the video of their launch party so our first conversation is on the internet it's amazing. Which is weird. <laughs> when was the last time you watched that? Um, I don't know. It comes up in conversation when, uh, like, the team members ask, uh, well, "How did you meet?" or friends ask, "How did you meet?" And it's like, oh, funny story. I've got an actual video. So yeah, that's super nice because it's like most people will never have that. Oh, I know. It's, it's like I think, um, like for me and Lucy, there's photos of the evening we met, yeah. like on Facebook somewhere from like yeah. from the club that we were in at the time. That's brilliant. So that's quite nice to have like those first to see when you first met yeah. but it's not you never get the actual kind of like you met you at this time which is really cool so funny story as well about that night is that I actually um accidentally gave David my wrong contact details and even though I wasn't on Facebook he still managed to find me and it wasn't that long before we were doing our first project together but imagine if he hadn't have bothered to kind of seek me out yeah um, we never would have been working together we wouldn't be here now that was graffiti life's first like proper job I suppose wasn't it? It was, it was we weren't a registered company yet but and I, I was technically the client because um I was working in music marketing at the time and um I was selling the perimeter fence postering at festivals and I thought it would be really cool to have um a hand-painted poster instead of a blue back print poster 
by the stage at Reading Festival. So that's why David always thinks that we met thinks that we met at Reading Festival um, because that was the first job that we did together. So I hired you to paint for me for Pendulum, the band at Reading Festival, which in two thousand and ten was pretty groundbreaking. Like no one had done any hand painted advertising at that point. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was uh, it was one of the first, definitely of its kind, um, certainly in this country. And I think that you know, considering how unadventurous and low budget the music industry was at that time, it was it was a really quick turnaround and a really exciting thing to be working on. So I kind of, kind of got the bug then, I guess. Where did that idea come from? Was that from meeting David at a networking event? Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I thought that's cool. We should do something like that. And it was just a case of persuading a client to do that. And just so happens that, that the, the label was really up for that. And how did that project go? <laughs> really well. Um, there were a few hitches. Um, the So my boss at the time absolutely assured me that he'd be able to square it with the festival owners that we would be able to paint inside Reading Festival Mm -hmm. and two days before the festival the festival owner turned around and said no you're not doing that inside so we had to come up with an alternative plan oh yeah which was to paint this is two days before the festival um we had to come up with a plan how we were going to paint this 48 sheet and a 48 sheet's you know it's massive it's six meters by three meters roughly so we had to figure out a way that we were going to paint this outside the festival in a way that the client would be happy with and then take it inside the festival. So we got um, like a poster van. Have you seen those those vans that you drive around? Yeah, yeah, like the A-board van kind Exactly, of yeah. they're a triangle, yeah. Um, so we parked one of those um, where all the festival goers walk from the station to yeah, the yeah. festival. We parked at the side of the road, painted it, and um, everyone was stopping to photograph. Everyone was, was stopping to chat. And then we overnight then kind of took that down and put it up inside the festival. And the second thing that kind of, well, half went wrong, half went right, was that there were so many Pendulum fans there that we could just see people eyeing it up. And I just sat and I watched from the second it was up and the the arena opened. I just sat and I watched um, to see how long it would take before someone stole it. And I just sat back and watched them. I'd warned the client, people are going to steal this. But that's almost a good thing. So, yeah, some, a group of teenagers stole it and I went up to them and went, a lot of work went into that. So if you're going to steal it, at least, at least, you know, do something good with it. And they're like, oh, we're going to treasure it forever. It's funny because like, we talk a lot on here about making content that's shareable and like, yeah. you know, a piece of content's good when someone else will share it. When they literally share it. When they want, it. When yeah, want make, to steal yeah, it. Yeah, when you something people actually want to steal, <laughs> I think that's when you know you've got a really, really good bit of content. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose for me at that stage, I'm really feeling like, we've got a good idea here because you're our first client, but it was all a success and it went really well. Didn't I ask you how much I should charge you for it? Yeah, <laughs> you did. <laughs> I think I was too honest as well. Although I think it, you know, looking back now, you, you could have charged more. I think that's a really good kind of lesson for anyone out there of just like ask your client what the budget is. Always. Because a lot of the times there will just be a nice person on the other end of the line who will actually tell you, well, this is how much we've got. I think if, as long as you explain to the client as well that it, it helps you to deliver the most value to them. It's not so that you know how much they've got so that you can take it all yeah, exactly, and yeah. get as much as you, you can of it. It's more so that you can deliver as much value as possible for their budget. So if you know that you're dealing with £5,000 or £10,000, you can go, OK, well, we can't do that for this. But what we can do is this and just try and work it out around their budget and give them as much as possible for that. I mean, for me, it was simply because I had no idea how much to charge. (laughs) And you seemed nice. And I was like, how how much should I charge you for this? And because you knew it was my first project and you knew that we weren't, we didn't really know what we were doing. And then we stood at the side of that poster van at the side of the road on the way to Reading Festival. And you said to me, so I'm thinking about doing this as a business full time. What do you think? And I was like, yeah, great. Do it. This is brilliant. Um, I'll help you. I'm in marketing. And that's how I got myself into this mess. <laughs> <laughs> so that would have been before we met you. Yeah. I wasn't meant to be involved to this extent at the time. I was just meant to be helping out to the point where, well, as you know, I ended up spending more time outside of my full-time hours than I was spending on my full-time job on this. Yeah, and I sort of rolled ahead and started, got, got a team around me, um, many of whom are not part of the company anymore but were there in those initial days and we well I mean we really didn't have any idea what we were doing and especially when it came to meetings you were really really helpful when it when it came to going to meetings 
Yeah, to the point where you sent me on a meeting once uh, when I was still working full time for another company. And I, uh, I said, I'm just going to a meeting, but failed to tell them that I was going to a meeting for you, not for them. <laughs> Sorry, you Simon, were, if you're listening. You were going to a meeting. I was going to a meeting. <laughs> That only happened once. I'm sorry, Simon. <laughs> so essentially you were working two jobs because we started giving you more and more workload and more and more workload and you were you were balancing both. Yeah, I was working more than a full-time job outside my full-time job. And I think it just... Uh, and that's the way it had to be at the start because, you know, you both were earning no money. So you, David, you'd, you'd moved back home to live with your parents, hadn't you? And I think, Adam, you yeah. were living with your Girlfriend. Yeah, I was living with Lucy and she was paying the rent at the time. So it's a time when we had absolutely no money. And I remember you saying to us that you really wanted to come on board, but we couldn't afford it because obviously you had like... I had to pay my rent. Exactly. I had a flat and, you know, I'd earn a flatmate and I could cut everything else out. And I did. I could cut every other expense out of my life, but not my rent. So it kind of went back to basically took a massive, massive pay cut and took the minimum possible money that I could from the company just to cover my rent. And then I basically just worked and didn't see any friends and barely ate, didn't drink for like the first however long it was. But it was it was a good year into the company that I actually quit my job. What would you, what would you say to someone who was in that exact situation now where they're working for someone else, but they've got something that they're passionate about? And taking that leap when they've already got things like rent to pay, maybe they've got a mortgage, maybe they've got kids. I think it's different for everyone. I think that, you know, it's obviously more difficult for some than others, especially if you've got dependents. Um, and so it was, it was a really different situation for you two than it was for me. But I think at, at some point it, it's about what level of sacrifice you are willing to put up with or can put up with. And for me, I was absolutely more than willing to sacrifice my social life um, and kind of luxuries and, and extras that I, you know, had perhaps had in the past for the sake of happiness and doing something that I really wanted to do in life. Um, I was so passionate and excited about what we were doing that I was spending all my spare time doing it anyway. And at some point it was just worth taking the leap of, you know, I, it wasn't immediate because I couldn't have afforded to do it immediately. But after a certain amount of time when we knew that, you know, we were getting a good amount of work in and we could afford a small amount just to cover my rent, it was definitely worth taking that leap. And for me, the sacrifice was was really worth it for happiness. But I think that's really up to people on an individual basis to decide what level of sacrifice they're willing to make and, and what the kind of happiness sacrifice balance is. You know, if it's something that they just desperately want and can't live without, then they're going to be willing to make that sacrifice. If it's something that they just want to try, then it's probably a bit riskier. In terms of um, energy, I suppose, is the only way I can think about it. Because we get a lot of people messaged to the show who are like, oh, well, I leave my nine to five, I'm exhausted. How do I get home and then carry on doing something else? Oh, I mean, for me at the time, and probably still now, you just you get carried by the momentum of it all you get and I think at the time also it helped having people that I was um I felt that I had a duty to you two um so I wasn't just doing it for myself especially at the start because I wasn't meant to be a part of the business I was doing it as a favor and I was doing it for you guys so that was a big motivator for me is like doing it for other people as opposed to myself but I've never really had a problem with the energy part of it I, I still work till 1am most nights and I mean we were in our 20s and I suppose we were in the position where I think like most people do have that space where they can experiment and try something and go for something and and we like me and Ad when we're doing talks we often talk about the the beans and noodle period just in terms of like having no money and oh, like because yeah. we talk about like when we were at uni there was this like great idea of like you've got no money when you're at uni really and you're like, okay as soon as I finish I'm gonna go and get a job I'm gonna earn 30k and I'm gonna be able to go and go to nice restaurants and do all these nice things and then we found ourselves for the next few years just deleting beans Being and noodles more, like worse than when we were students yeah <laughs> yeah I had a lot more money. a lot more disposable income when I was a student than when I first started the business for sure and I was already in a job where I was, you know, I wasn't on great money, but I was definitely on better money than when we started this. And that, that lasted quite a long time as well. And I think that's a lot of the reason why there were more people at the start, but they kind of fell by the wayside because the sacrifice for them was, was 
too much for what they could see getting out of it. And, yeah. and, and you know, obviously some people have more responsibilities and, and just needed the money. Um, whereas we were just able to to get by and we really, really, really wanted it. <laughs> what was your vision for your future at the start? Because obviously you must have seen a potential for it, otherwise you wouldn't have quit your job. No, I thought, I thought it was, yeah, I, in, well, I obviously instantly saw potential in it from meeting David at a networking event and thinking I can use that for my clients. So I instantly recognised that um, the yeah, idea was of, a good one. Kind of coming from it, from the other side of the fence, as yeah, in as I've paid for this, so other people yeah. pay for it, yeah. Yeah, and there was just nothing like it at the time. There was just, you know, the, the potential was just immense. And I think we all had our periods of doubt. Um, one of us would have doubts and then the other two would pull us up. And um, I, I do specifically remember um, being in my little bedroom just off Brick Lane and being on the phone to you and you're saying, it's not going to work, it's not going to work. Um, and then the next day we got our first project in that was that was kind of about a thousand pounds or something. And you, you actually said, if we could just get one project in for a thousand pounds, then, you know, everyone could just get a couple of hundred quid and it would just ease the tension. And I think that that week we got a project in that was for about a thousand pounds and it did ease the tension. It just kind of raised everyone's hopes a little bit and... Yeah, I suppose more than anyone else, I was the most negative one. I was the one who was questioning it quite a lot. Or that, in retrospect, that's how it feels like it was. I think we all took it in turns. Yeah, I think everyone had the down points. I feel like the biggest journey you've taken over the past few years, though, David, is your ability to change your mindset to be a lot more positive. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, like when we first met, I was like, who is this miserable bastard? <laughs> is that but, what you thought? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, who'd have thought that all years later, all these years later, he'd have become a happy boy? And- Bloody missed the positivity. <laughs> now. Did you think that he'd become such a big part of your life when you met him? Like, how did you feel when you met the guys? And you- well, I mean, like meeting guys, and like for me, there was kind of it was uh, there was nothing else. There's no other options on at the time because I couldn't get a job anywhere, and um, I'd met these people, and I was like, "This sounds like a really cool idea. I can definitely see this being something." It was during a recession as well, wasn't it, or just on the way out of a recession? Yeah, so it was so. 2009, wasn't it? So just after the recession, yeah. the hit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was, 2010. Yeah, 2010. So yeah, just after kind of coming out of the back of the recession, but still, like, there's been austerity since. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I remember like meeting everyone and just being like. Uh, this seems interesting, like real See mix of mix this. of characters. Um, and with David being very silent and sat in the background and didn't really make much effort. But I've now know the story from his side of things where he was just like, this poor kid's just come in here, surrounded by everyone being like, come and join our company, come and join our company. And just didn't want to be another person to throw onto that pressure. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, I just remember sitting in that room. And um, so it was me and a couple of other artists and... And everyone was was pressuring Adam, and I and I said, and you don't have to if you don't want to. <laughs> I just remember saying that because <laughs> just left thinking, oh, he really didn't want me, did he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe it came across that way, but I just was trying to give him the option of like, don't let us pressure in, you into something you don't want to do. Good job, Russ. There was no, uh, it was a recession and no other jobs to be had. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a recession is the perfect time to work out when something good is actually good yeah because it's like if you can test of time yeah like we started probably business at the worst time possible yeah. and it was through the fact that we had a really good product is the fact that it managed to last another 10 years and i think if we had a bad business product then we wouldn't have worked because it's like you working advertising we're thinking or marketing we're thinking like we need something that's going to stand out here that's not just the standard otherwise because the money needs to go further and I suppose because we had a product that did that, that's where it really works. That's exactly what it was at the time as well, because um, kind of part of the music industry that I worked in, the marketing um, sector, people were spending less and less money or had you know lower and lower budgets, but they were therefore having to be more creative with their budgets. It's exactly yeah. what it was, and it just felt like a perfect way of doing it. Because I suppose music industry-wise, that's a similar time to when streaming and stuff is just starting oh, and downloads are kicking dying. in. it was dying. It was just awful in the music industry at the time. And it was, uh, it was a really miserable place to, <laughs> to be at the time. A question we're getting a lot at the moment, especially from uni graduates when we've been doing talks around, around different universities, is how do you work out whether to go into business with people um, or whether to do it or whether to do something on your own? How do you, what, where do you lay on that side of the fence? Well, for me, 
it's like I was saying earlier, the fact that I felt kind of indebted to you or, or um, you know, I, I owed you my hard work was a really good motivator for me. I'm, I'm, if I do things just for myself, I tend to procrastinate too much. I tend to have, you know, be a bit more self-doubting, uh, just a bit slower about things. But where I, I know that I have a duty to you two, I just get on with it because I have to. So for me... Accountability almost. Yeah, absolutely. And also um, it goes back to what we always say that, you know, we each have skills that the other two are lacking. You know, you were, I came from much more of a kind of a corporate business kind of environment, much more used to kind of presentations and marketing and meetings and that kind of thing, more of a business sense, um, which is why I'm the person that's always been the most client facing and project managing and that side of things. Um, and, you know, Adam came in with his amazing IT skills that we were two were both definitely lacking in. And then, you know, Adam being an artist as well, me being a designer as well, but you obviously having at the time, I think 12 years of painting experience. So we just perfectly complemented each other. And I think if people are questioning um, whether or not they need to have a partner, it might be that because they are lacking in something that they feel that they need. I think it's really important to work with people that you do gel with and mesh with and I think that's why we're three still here nine and a half years later is because we do get on um and you know we we've been through a lot together so we trust each other implicitly and you know it's it's hard at the start and you know there were more of us at the start and that you know I always feel like the company has kind of picked the people it needed to survive like it's this organic thing um but I definitely say that if you can work, if you can find someone that you can see yourself working with that you get on um, and that they bring something to the situation that you don't, don't just find a carbon copy of yourself because you like hanging around them because that, that's important too. But is that person needed in the company? Is that something that, that can bring something to the table that you can't or motivate you in a way that you can't motivate yourself? Then I think it's a definitely a good idea. It's, it's a lonely it's a lonely thing having your own business sometimes and we've definitely benefited from doing it together as opposed to doing it on our own um we we all need geeing up sometimes don't we yeah yeah and like we say quite often as well how like when you get started if there are more than one of you it's really hard at the start because then you've suddenly got to earn enough for three people to survive um but i think if you can push through that then it makes you stronger in the long term yeah for sure yeah so at what stage then did we get to where we were no longer struggling? Still now. <laughs> yeah. You have your ups and downs. We've, we've had our ups and downs for the past nine and a half years, but it, it was the point where I think when we started to feel a little bit more confident is when we moved out of the warehouse in Norwood Junction and got our first little office in Whitechapel. I think and I remember- there's, a, there's a gap there of us moving home for ages because we couldn't really afford to have the... Oh, that's right. We went home. I was working from, from my kitchen table. Yeah. yeah. So I was working from my bedroom. I do not remember that at all. Yeah, we, yeah, you were working from your bedroom and you um, bought a chair because your back was hurting, remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but... When we took that first office in Whitechapel, I remember really clearly you going, we can't afford this, we can't afford this. And, you know, having to convince you that we can do it. We have to we have to kind of take a leap of faith sometimes and it will help us progress. And I feel like that's what has happened every time we um, employed someone as well. Sometimes we couldn't afford to take that person on, but we just had to have the faith that that's what the company needed. And by employing them it will come back in, in, in profit somehow because we need we needed that person and they've yeah. brought value back into the company. Remember one time that we employed two people when there was only one person needed because we were so convinced that they would both bring value to the I company. think that's like, we've always been quite brave with that and just gone for it. Yeah. Whereas there must be so many people who don't take that risk and are just just don't progress because it's like it's you're you're never going to get to that stage it's like when people think about having a kid or something yeah. there's never a right never time the right to have time. it there's yeah. never a right time to get that first office never t- that time to get the better office to employ people you just kind of have to take it when you're never s- comfortable no it's always it's always just a little bit uncomfortable yeah you're never going to get to a stage when you're if you want to take on something for 30 grand yeah. and you've got okay we've got an extra 30 grand in the bank now let's do it you have to do it before that point otherwise you might never do that and it's by doing it that gives you the chance to grow because yeah moving into that first office then suddenly you're out of your home so yeah. you've kind of got a bit more concentration you've got everyone else around you so it's like if you need to ask a question you don't have to pick up the phone or send an email it's literally just ask across the room 
and things get more productive and it, everything just kind of escalates and builds on itself. Yeah, absolutely. I was petrified that that, were, that was going to sink us. Yeah, you were always the kind of the most um, nervous about kind of taking leaps of spending money for sure. You were always quite, mm. you took us convincing. I think that um, one thing I get asked a lot as well is um, when is the right time to take on your first employee? Yeah. And I think that it really depends on what you want from it as well, because that expanding that leap of faith was always because we wanted it to be something bigger. And we knew that to expand and to, to do what we wanted to do with the company, we needed a team. Whereas some people, it might not be the right thing to employ people if it's just something that you want to keep to yourself. Because I find out of everything we do, I find that the managing a team side of it, the most rewarding, but also the most challenging thing. You know, it does it does change the dynamic of the company when you have employees and you have a team that you're responsible for. So that is definitely a massive consideration that people should consider really carefully. Do I need to have a team? Do I want to grow it to that? Or or am I a sole trader? Mm. Um, do I have a craft that I just want to do? I don't want to expand it to the level of, of having a team doing the same thing. It's just something for me that I love doing and I'm happy doing that. Or is it something that they want to grow and they need a team for it? It's a really difficult question. Where did the kind of enjoyment of working with a team come for you? Um, I like people. <laughs> and I think that um, I'm, I'm really passionate about the idea of, of um, work being enjoyable for everyone, that it can be and that we're all really different and we all have different motivators and we all have... Um, different ways that we want to, different love languages, I guess. And it's something that Jennifer Dolsky in a book called Purposeful talks about it a lot. And I've, I've taken a lot of inspiration from that, actually. She said that one of her, in, one of her team in a, in a one-on-one at one point said, Jennifer, I'm just going to tell you now, money motivates me, nothing else. I don't want praise. I don't want anything. If you think I've done a good job, I just want more money. And then she was really taken aback by it, but that she realised, okay, so that's true for this person, but it's absolutely not true for this person. I think that looking at everyone as individuals and seeing what motivates them and trying to analyse what they do and how their work relates to their home life um, and really getting into depth with people about what they want out of their working life um, is it's a really satisfying thing and kind of seeing the growth in people and kind of trying to help facilitate growth in the team is just so rewarding. It's really hard and it's really exhausting sometimes because it's so, you know, to do it properly, you have to give a lot to the process but it's um yeah it's really rewarding what's the love language um so i i think there's it's seven different love languages or something like that there's there's there, there are books about it but it's it's the way that you like to give love and the way that you like to receive love and recognizing that not everyone likes to receive love in the way that you like to receive love or in the way that you like to give love so it's it's understanding that some people might be um, really tactile and really hands-on and really touchy-feely um, and really affectionate um, and um, that's their way of giving uh, giving love and other people might do it with um, with giving gifts but you know for some other people being showered with gifts or affection isn't how they like to receive love that's not their love language so it's just kind of understanding that not everyone is the same as you and, and that, that praise for one person isn't praise for another person um, What's your love language? I, I guess I like praise. <laughs> um, and I like affection. So I'm kind of uh, quite, I'm stereotypical, really. I, I prefer um, praise and affection to kind of um, money or reward like that. I think that um, I respond more to kind of warmth. And that that's, tends to be my love language as well in, in the way I am with other people. That's how I like to love other people. But then I have to kind of adjust that two different people and how do you how do you know like how can you pick up on other people's well the way we do it here is that we literally ask so we actually do a thing where we go through everyone's um day-to-day -day life and we go what what is the ideal work this is another thing i got from jennifer dolsky actually um we go through everyone's work life um their ideal work environment and that could be anything from um i'd really like an office dog to um i'd like to be on a certain amount of money um i'd like to have like really good coffee in the cupboards um i'd like to be able to live 
close enough to run to work. And so we put all those things into a list of priorities. We give them a, a weight, a percentage of how important that is, all adding up to 100, and then put that into a pie chart. And I call it the, um, the priority pie. And then we'll, if it's... Sounds delicious. <laughs> priority. It's <laughs> really cheesy. Priority. There we go. <gasps> Brilliant. Um, but if it's something we're working on, but it's not yet in place... Um, then we put it amber. If it's something that's already in place, it's green. And if it's something we haven't yet started to work on, it's red. But I'm trying to kind of get into people's minds that there's nothing that is, you know, life life is fairly flexible and there's not many things that we can't adjust or, or make happen. So I think um, one of the examples um, Jennifer Dolsky talks about is um, she had someone who wanted to be able to go rock climbing every day. You know, we live in a fairly flexible time. If somebody wanted to fit their work life around being able to go rock climbing every day. That is a, that is a thing that can happen, mm-hmm. but people aren't often, people are scared to ask and people just kind of think that a nine to five is, is just what it is. Um, whereas actually there's a lot we can do to adapt our lives and our work lives around what we want to do. Cause you know, we're, we're in work for a lot of our lives. I think it's a third of your life is in work. Yeah. I just, I think that people should be a little bit more, creative and ambitious with the way that they want to work and and how that suits them in their life because yeah we're here a lot (laughs) and have the confidence to go to your employer and say look this is what I want to do and with things like flexible working which I go on about all the time (laughs) um it's completely possible and it's a good chance that your employer will kind of go for it and if they don't and you keep suggesting things then that's the time you probably need to get out because If, if things aren't going to change and you're not going to be happy in what you're doing and then they're not going to be flexible to suit you. Like a job has to be a two-way thing. It can't just be like a you work for them, they don't give you anything back apart from a salary. It has to be like, it's like it's a friendship, it's a relationship. Like no one wants a friendship or a relationship that's completely one-sided. Yeah, and I think when, you're, when you go into a job interview, I think it's important to ask questions of your employer of, what do they believe in? What what do they stand for? What what are they trying to achieve? And see if you see Aligned if you align. Your values, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I know someone who went for a job interview recently, and they basically said like, "Come, I do flexible working. Like this is what I currently have in my job. Where every Friday I finish at um, midday, and we make it up in the rest of the week. And I, but this person really loves that, and it makes a massive difference to their life since they started doing it. And when they applied for this new place, they said no. And when they asked why, it was like, oh, well, we wouldn't want everyone to start doing it. And it's just like, fuck, that's not a company you want to work for. It's instantly you know that they're not flexible and they're not there to support their staff. Like give and take type thing. Yeah. yeah. Another part of that is that we talk about what part of people's jobs they're... Um they enjoy the most and try and help them do that as much as possible so obviously there's there's a kind of a baseline of work that needs to be done and clients want different things from us and that you know kind of dictates what needs to be done and what direction we take the company in but we can also look at people's individual roles and try and kind of shift them around and be a bit more fluid with people's roles depending on what they're interested in what they're interested in learning as well as what they're good at um and just using people to their strengths. I think it's important to be a bit more flexible. Yeah, like I suppose, um, like you've taken Becky working for Graffiti Life and doing a few more all over projects to help her grow because she's interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose at the beginning of this podcast, we always mention we started our first company, Graffiti Life. So all of the the attention normally goes on on Graffiti Life. But I mean, you're you're sort of the the spearhead behind all over our alternative. Yeah advertising agency so do you want to describe a little bit about what that does so yeah we started off doing murals um kind of first murals that we did were in kids bedrooms and that kind of thing and it soon kind of progressed into working for major major brands worldwide um doing kind of advertising murals um and as we saw more of a need for that we decided to start um a wing of the company that was uh, more dedicated to creative out-of-home projects. So out-of-home advertising being advertising that is not in the home, not on TV, but actually things that you'll see in the street. And um, we had a wonderful team of creatives and we kept being asked to come up with ideas for things. And so All Over basically is a um, celebrating handcrafted projects um, in out-of-home, not just hand-painted but handcrafted so we now have um 
urban gardening wing. Matt has a project called Dirty Fingers Club, so he does community gardening projects. We do special bills and we basically come up with crazy ideas for brands who want to do something just a little bit different and beautiful and handcrafted. So we spend our days coming up with ridiculous ideas, basically. So it's almost like you've gone full circle from doing that first thing. It's crazy because um, about halfway through the the past nine and a half years, I started to work for people that I was working with back in the music industry again under completely different circumstances. But yeah, I've come full circle. We've got the same clients now as I did then. And yeah, it's crazy. They've got better budgets now, so that's better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How important is that handcrafted element to you? Hugely important. Um, I trained as a, as a graphic designer, so... Um, design briefs and developing design briefs is is kind of where I come from um handcrafted I think is something that as the world gets more digital people are really craving handcrafted um it's 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 good for the soul (laughs) you know it's um it's it's like we always say isn't it it's um how excited you get when you get an email but compare that to how excited you get if someone sends you a handwritten letter it's that human quality, that human element that people can really engage with. It's the same when people see you painting in the street. Um, the amount of people that stop and ask us questions and take photos and videos and send those photos to their friends compared to if someone was putting a billboard up that's just print. Yeah, um, it's funny because it's like, I feel like it's definitely, I don't know if it's just something built into us, the fact that we like things that are a little bit more organic because I was in um, Italy recently and just walking around and you see the signs that are hand done and there's something about them like they can look almost the same as a one that's been done by a machine but the hand done ones there's something about it just that slight imperfection that's beautiful you can connect to the human that created it yeah yeah and i feel even looking at like old brands and old like there'd be lots of like old cars and things and just seeing like their logos and stuff because you know that they were once hand drawn they just have a different quality to them that you just don't get today going on signs adam you know, I'm like for signs. What are you like for signs? <laughs> I've actually got a, um, an Instagram account that's all about um, hand-painted signs that I found all over the world. <laughs> Very geeky, but I enjoy it. And where did that love come from? Um, I think it was... I think it started when I was in America and there's so many more hand-painted signs there and ghost signs and things mm. um, there. And I just, I'm so fascinated by that. Um, and I think it's a, a skill that's... I mean, it's coming back now. Um, to a certain extent but yeah that that handcrafted quality and seeing seeing letters on a wall that you know someone has painted by hand it's just something so beautiful about that I feel like we'll always have that at our core because and I suppose it's it's the hill that I'll die on because you always hear about companies that don't adapt and don't and don't move with the times and then go out of fashion and they're I I just feel like handcrafted will never go out of fashion maybe it will and maybe that'll be what puts us out of business it has gone out of fashion Previously, yeah, that's why digital started. I suppose, yeah, that's why all the sign painters in America, yeah, were all out of jobs. That was to do with, you know, you you could do it on mass a lot cheaper, and so, you know, money will always be a factor in everything. If you can do things cheaper, then you will. But people are starting to see return now to seeing the value of handcrafted, um, the value for money. That even though it's a little bit more expensive. It's like like we were saying earlier about people taking photos of, of our work, but not of billboards. So it's instantly more shareable and so people are starting to recognise that as, as a value mm. as opposed to just producing something on mass. Yeah, when we talked to Harris Newcomb, he had a really nice analogy that was talking about the way society works and everything has a push and pull. Mm. So he's saying society will push you one way and then there'll always be someone pulling back the other way. No matter what it is, you go so far down one route, there's always a set of people who try and pull down the other route. Pendulum theory. Yeah, and yeah. I feel like we're, we're the pull. We're, we'll always be the pull. I think that's where, where we differ. And digital will always be important. You know, technology is always going to progress and people are going to be excited about using new technologies. But what, where, what we do is kind of interesting is because we are not, shunning that technology we integrate it a lot of the time in what we do so you know having ar integrated murals for example you know that's really cutting edge and and high tech but it's still hand painted and hand hand designed and handcrafted so and even like all of the mock-ups and designs we do will be digital designs like we start from a very digital place but we can still 
and like digital massively helps what we do day to day but so it's not completely shunning it i think that's a that's a silly idea (laughs) exactly yeah it's kind of yeah embracing what is good about it but then also appreciating the hand craft of it too yeah how important is networking for you i mean crazy important for a start like i said earlier we wouldn't be here (laughs) if i hadn't met david at a networking thing um but i think I think this is something that I remember saying to you both like a few years ago that networking is just hugely important because no matter how um no matter no matter how many followers you have connections you make on Instagram which is all great there's nothing like face-to-face human interaction I think that um most of our like repeat clients over the years that we've had Um, we've built relationships with and they've become our friends you know we get most of our work from friends because we have you know we genuinely like them and they genuinely like us and so we do lots of work together because we enjoy it it's um and it's not to say that you should go and make friends just to use them so you can get business out of them it makes your life more pleasant and it makes them their life more pleasant if you can you know have a really good working relationship and you're delivering value to each other it's just a no-brainer um I am spending December most nights going out with our clients and doing fun things with our clients. And it it just makes working life fun. One thing I always say when we do talks at universities is don't underestimate the power of networking at university, because I did. Um, I was at Central St. Martins and I just absolutely totally wasted the opportunity to make connections that I that would really benefit me now because I was quite shy I was from North Wales this little scared girl in the city not that scared but you know it was St Martin's was pretty cutthroat um and it was quite difficult to kind of get to know people really really well um and so I shied away from it and I stuck to the friends I already had um and I think that that's it's never too early to start networking and networking just means making friends basically that's all it means making friends and if you're willing to go out and make friends with with people who can help you on your journey then yeah I mean it's invaluable because you've been to a client's wedding haven't you Oh, went all the way to India for a client's <laughs> wedding, but she's she's now a friend, not a client. But well, there we go. That's exactly what I mean. Is I don't consider her a client. I consider her a friend who we work with sometimes. Um, yeah, ended up going all the way to India for it. You mentioned there being a, a scared girl from North Wales. So you you moved down to London for uni, and you've not not moved, not ever moved back since. Yeah. Um, how have you developed? Because I mean, you're a strong confident businesswoman now how have you how have you how have you fostered that and developed that I'm practice I remember being terrified going with my old boss Simon Stanford into meetings at record labels where I had to present to 12 13 14 people at a time on what we could do for them you know I wasn't I wasn't long out of university it was terrifying but it's just practice what would you say to that young girl now keep going it's it you know it gets better it's just a case of I think that the, the more you know your product or your your service or whatever it is that you're talking about the better you know it the more confident that you will be um so who is it that says um always know more about the subject than anybody else in the room um so it, if it is your product this is graffiti life and all over them they're, they're my babies you know I know everything about them there's nothing you can ask me that I wouldn't be able to talk on with confidence um and so that that gives you confidence when speaking publicly and speaking to me you know to clients so it it comes with time and experience and knowing your stuff have you found it challenging in any way being a woman in business um yes i think definitely in our industry i think that sometimes i'm not quite what people are expecting to turn up to meetings um from a graffiti company which you know sometimes works in my favor um but I think definitely in um, in all over, um, we have to deal with quite huge projects. Um, so we're dealing with um, suppliers and tradespeople from all walks of life. And certainly when, especially because, some, you know, my, co- my co-workers and project managers, um, some of them are female as well. And it can be just us working on projects where we're talking to builders and scaffolders and lots of people who are kind of from that kind of industry who just are not expecting to be dealing with us and um i had to write quite a stern letter to Uh, predominantly male predominantly male predominantly kind of slightly older um 
I had to write a letter to one of our suppliers once to say, um, to ask him to ask his team to stop referring to us as young lady um, because neither my gender nor my age were relevant to my ability to do my job or nor... Or to hire scaffolding. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, if he didn't stop calling us young lady, then we'd start calling him old man, um, which I'm sure he wouldn't like. But we do get kind of quite a lot of kind of condescending behaviour. I was at a networking event the other day when a... um, slightly older supplier decided to put his hand on my rear end (laughs) while having a conversation with somebody in front of me and uh it's you know it's it's kind of I think it's something that men don't necessarily experience very much David you're looking at me with such shock um the gentleman in question didn't really didn't mean anything by it um it was no (laughs) not appropriate not cool (laughs) not cool not cool at all but that is the kind of day-to-day thing that that women do have I think that the, the question of have you experienced or is it harder being a woman in business I think invariably the answer is going to be yes in, in my opinion um to be taken seriously um to be yeah taken seriously it's harder to be taken seriously especially when you know well, we've got all these emotions that get in the way it's <laughs> yeah definitely harder You've been in the creative field for a really long time. Like, tell us about your first job. I did uh, work experience when I was 15 um, at uh, an interior designer's um, called Design Home 2000. And oh, that's such a, an of-the-age name. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? Um, oh, made very good friends with the managers. Went back when I was 17 to do work experience again and then ended up working for them as a Saturday girl. Um at the same time as I was working in Dorothy Perkins, I believe. Didn't you do your first ever mural for them? Oh, I did. I did a Hokusai wave on someone's bathroom wall in North Wales. Amazing. Yeah. I feel like we did a, one of those exact things in Wales within the past year. A Hokusai wave? Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe it was uh, touching up mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess I have come full circle. It's funny when you look in retrospect, you, you, you tie things together, mm-hmm. I guess there's lots of things that happened that you wouldn't tie in because it just kind of seems like like doing a mural when you were 15 and then to now doing murals full-time that you you would go like, oh, I guess it was always in the stars. But Yeah, and to work with the same clients as I used to work with in my old work. And it's, it's like my all my skills have kind of perfectly aligned in this one role, but I would never in a million years have imagined that this would be what I'd be doing for a career. How Like, why would I ever imagine that I'd start a graffiti company you know and yeah unbelievable um I think that's kind of the joy of life sometimes is that you have this kind of idea of where you're going and then life just takes you off in another direction and it's way better than you ever possibly could have imagined it being I wouldn't change the past nine years for for love nor money it's been a struggle it's been hard um and there's still loads of other things that I want to do as well but yeah that's that's the joy of sometimes going with with where the world takes you a little bit. I suppose bit. one thing that's kind of tied everything together is creativity. Like, yeah. How important to you is creativity? Oh, amazingly. Um, so the project that we just did with Tati Divine, kind of pioneering creativity, um, previous guests on the podcast, if you haven't heard it, give it a listen, it's really good. Um, but that all came out of our mutual sense of the importance of creativity and, and how it's it's not it's not important, it's vital, it's vital. It's the fastest growing in- industry in the UK. Um and it's the only thing that's AI proof and, uh, yeah, immensely important. I think that one thing for me is that going back to being a, a kid in North Wales, it was the only subject in our school that wasn't given a pro- The top student wasn't given a prize for that subject at the end of A-levels. Really? Every single other, um, art, sorry, okay. sorry, creative subjects, yeah. Art was the only subject that at the end of A-levels... We, the top student wasn't given a prize. Every other subject, there was a, you know, top student gets a prize in that subject. There wasn't one for, for art because no one saw it as important. Um, Fuck. Guy in the year above me was just super, super good at every single subject. Really academic guy. Went to Oxford to study art and, and the school almost disowned him because why why do you want to do that? You should be doing academic subjects. We were all pushed so heavily down an academic route. Um, lots of my friends who studied maths and science, you know, thought they were going down a sensible route, couldn't get a job at the end of their degrees. So it's it's kind of a myth to think that that it's not important and it's actually a difficult route to take. Um, there are so many jobs in, in the creative industries. It's not just, oh, I have to become an artist. 
You know, there are so yeah. many different routes you I th- can take. I think at school with art, that's kind of all you're led to believe. It's yeah. like if you're creative, you're going to be a all struggling you're going artist. To do. So it's like that's why I did, went to do interior architecture because I was like really good at art, and I would have done art if that was a possibility to Ooh, earn money. It's going to be tough, isn't it? And I was Ooh. like, well, how am yeah. I going to earn that? Like, there's literally yeah. no one's ever shown me a way that I can earn money yeah. from art apart no from one does put art in a gallery. When I told our careers advisor when I was 15 that I wanted to be an interior designer because that's what I wanted to be at the time. Um, she said, oh, well, how do you do that then? I said, well, I'm going to do foundation art and then I'm going to go to university and I'm going to study interior design and I'm going to do it. And she was like, okay, do that then. Because That's great careers advice <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. Absolutely, I had to tell her because it just wasn't a career that even came under her radar at all. Um, just think about how many people there are out there who didn't do the research that you did yeah. to find out that was a path yeah. and went to their careers advisor and now do something that they're not happy with. Yeah. With hindsight, I've always been, you know, really quite angry with my education with with my school specifically because they just discounted creative subjects completely and I know that David you were actively discouraged from from going down a creative route in fact wasn't it your your degree tutor told yes. you don't bother there's no money in art yeah I said art wasn't a real, realistic career option and that it should be more realistic and so you did the opposite. <laughs> I think that's why we're all three here is because we all kind of didn't want to believe that that was the case. And I... Because we are creative rebels, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Where did the love for interior design come from? Oh, I don't know, but it was always there. Lawrence Wellenbone? Probably. Not him specifically, but it was, it was the changing rooms era and home front. And yeah. I do remember when I was 13, making my best friend, Klinos, who is now an interior designer, coming over to my house. I was like, Klinos, we're going to do a project. Let's design a house. So we got a scrapbook and we kind of made our own stencils. I remember making an ivy stencil to do a stippling to make a border. Uh, it was the 90s. Um, I think we had stippled stencils in our house. Did as you? Well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, as long as I can remember, I, you know, I've been making things out of things when I was five I was constantly running out of glue or salad tape and having to find creative ways of sticking things to each other. And, uh, and you still shoehorn interior design into quite a few projects. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, uh, um, well, I designed our studio for a start. I designed Parlour, the tattoo studio. Um, and everyone says how beautiful both look whenever we get any guests. <laughs> um, and a lot of the times um, when we do kind of commercial interiors projects, bureau projects, it's to tie in with an interior scheme. And sometimes we get involved in that as well. We, can, we even get involved in kind of recommending products to go with with our murals as well. So, yeah, absolutely tie that in with with what I do. That's the thing, isn't it? Because you can you can just plonk a mural in a space, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's about the project as a whole. And I think that the, the clients that we enjoy working with the most understand that, that they can um, look at their plans as a whole and work with us to try and create something that works beautifully together. What's the key to making something look beautiful in a space? It's a very difficult question. I think it's case by case. I think it's that you have to work with the space for a start and work with what you've got. But you have to understand what the client is trying to achieve. Why is it that they want a mural? And and what do they want from their space? And when you understand that, you can start looking at the right way of doing that. So when you meet someone, what do you say is your job role? Oh, it's so difficult. (laughs) So difficult. A neighbour asked in an elevator the other day and I really succinctly summed it up as we have a mural company and a creative agency which is the fastest I've ever done it but it's really difficult because depending on what project we're working on I'm either you know in advertising or I'm an interior designer or I'm a project manager or I manage a team Um, you're in a tattoo studio oh in the tattoo studio yeah there's, (laughs) there's that as well but I think that um I think that I've probably designed it that way subconsciously because um, and I do have kind of a varied skill set and lots of different interests and I've kind of brought them together into one kind of umbrella career. But I, I kind of strongly believe that life is a career. It's something I heard on a, a very lovely octo- octogenarian lady on Radio 4 once said. Um, she was a scientist and a musician and an artist and this, that and the other. And she was like, well, dear, life is a career. And I, I so strongly believe that, that... You know, I hope to write an album at one point in my life. And if I'm 80 when I do it, then so be it. It's not It's not like you have to pick one thing and go with it. And I think people feel such pressure to choose their passion 
and make that work. And I think at some points in your life, you do have to dedicate real time to one thing and become an expert at that and make that work. But that's not to say that that's the thing that you have to do for the rest of your life. Um, there's, there are so many more things that I want to do and will do. You know, I'd really like to pursue the interiors thing more. I'd really like to do product design. I really want to go back to writing music like I used to when I was younger. I, there's so many things that I can still do. And I honestly don't believe that, that, that you get too old to try something new. I think it becomes harder because society wants, especially for women, going back to the point you made earlier, but I think that it is harder for older women to be taken seriously. Um, but I honestly don't believe it's ever too late to start something new. Well, Adam and I would just like to say thank you for being our business partner. Oh, thank we, you. Uh, we couldn't have I'd done, enjoyed it. We couldn't have done any anything. We couldn't have built what we've built without you. And we always describe you as the, the glue that holds our businesses together. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> so, yeah, we just uh, we just want to thank you. And here's to another 10 years. Oh, indeed. And thank you for having me on the podcast. It's nice to it's nice to see this side of the business. I don't normally get to play here, so that's <laughs> very nice of you. Thank you very much. So if anyone wants to reach out and tell you how much they enjoyed listening to you on this episode of the show, where can they find you online? Um, so you can find me um, on Instagram um, at underscore style by night underscore or um, Yana Tash Thomas on LinkedIn. How do you spell Yana? It's I-O-N-A. I know, annoying. <laughs> Funny name. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Boom. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya.